You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Hello and welcome to the final episode of season three of the RN Mentor podcast. I am being joined uh, by the incredible Dr. Adrian Martinez Hollingsworth. Uh, she is a Latina registered nurse, a health services researcher, and first generation high school graduate. She is in her second year of postdoctoral training at the UCLA National Collision Scholars Program, where she has received NIH support for studies exploring the impact of provider burnout on diabetes care delivery among Latinx older adults in the safety net. Trained as a licensed vocational nurse at the East Los Angeles Occupational Center, she went on to receive her undergraduate degree in women's studies from UCLA, her master's of science in nursing at Charles Drew University of Medicine and Science, and her doctorate from the School of Nursing at UCLA. She has worked as a clinician uh, and administrator in large urban hospital systems and as a subject matter expert for technology companies. Dr. Martinez Hollingsworth is a creator of Theory Generator Playground, a, Latin, a Latino Latinx student research collective that supports early career nurses by creating facilitating service and research projects, mentorship activities, and college application support. It is her core belief that achieving health equity at the national level hinges on preparing the next generation of nurses from underrepresented minorities, including rural areas and immigrant populations to meet the needs of a growing and diversifying population. Welcome to the show, Dr. Martinez Hollingworth. Oh, thank you so much. Feel free to call me Adrian. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now you and I have met, I don't, it's been a while, we, like five, six, seven years ago, something like that. Yeah. So it's been a while. And we met at a conference mm -hmm. at the yeah. wind conference, I believe. If I'm yeah, not mistaken. Yeah. I think we were in San Diego at the time. Yes. Yes, definitely. Uh, so thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for staying connected. Um, so uh, I, so let's start with how did you get start started in the world of nursing? Because you are you you had gone a different route and came back uh, to the world of nursing. So how did that how did that begin? Well, I have really done the entire career ladder uh, in nursing. So I, as you mentioned, was a, a first generation high school grad. Right, I didn't have a strong focus on education growing up. Um, you know, I had a wonderful supportive family, but they weren't they weren't really pushing women especially to go forward and get uh, degrees. And so I had started working in hospitals as an unlicensed care provider, uh, essentially what you would now describe as like a mental health worker um, or a, a, a CNA, but an unlicensed CNA. And so 
really just the constant support of nurses in these spaces is what continued to push me forward. Um, I would be working with patients, really enjoying it. You know, it's hard work. It's necessary work, but it's very hard work. And the RNs on, on the unit would be like, Adrian, what are you doing? You know, you got to keep going back to school, keep getting more and more. And uh, at the time, the East LA Occupational Center had an LVN program that was a, a shortened version. It was like 11 months. And, you know, I got in there and I finished my LVN and got more exposure to nurses who were like, what are you doing? You can't stop here. This is a career ladder. And it was really their support that kept me looking for opportunities. Um, I do have to say that I've been incredibly blessed with a lot of opportunities because there are very few Latinas in nursing, especially at the higher levels. So there were lots of scholarship opportunities um, and you know some key mentorship that I was able to access. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, now, what was your, uh, I know you said like the sort of like the people that you were working with that got you involved in the nursing. How did you go about like actually saying, yeah, that's what I want to do. And uh, where did, where did you get like your start? Uh, like, like what was your first step in, in that process? Where the, or, Cause I know, as you mentioned, there are like, there's a lot of, there's schools out there, there's opportunities out there, but they're not, they're not necessarily, they wait for people to go to them. Yeah. Right. Uh, so how, what was your first steps in, in trying to find those things out? Honestly, I think the most important step to me was to understand what nurses are and who they are and what they do. Because I grew up, you know, without medical insurance, I think I had Medi-Cal or whatever version we had back in the 70s. And, um, you know, and I didn't have anyone in my family who'd been in the health professions at all. Right. So because of that, you think of nurses as people who change bedpans. You don't really realize the full complexity of what it means to be a nurse. Right all of the, you know, the problem solving and all of the independence that you have in that role. And so, you know, as a consequence, just hearing about what nurses do changed me. So I think the most important step really was just understanding what nurses do, getting that exposure. Because in reality, I didn't know anyone growing up who was a nurse. And I think a lot of times the media portrays nurses as less complex than they are and less capable than they are. And so as soon as I actually saw that nurses had this independent hand, they were able to kind of problem solve for complex patients and, and they were doing it all with this empathic, caring approach. I actually said to myself, wow, I'm a nurse. I didn't know. I, I wouldn't have known, but I've, I've been this kind of person my whole life. And it makes sense to pursue this track. That's amazing. Uh, like, yeah, like I said, there's there's opportunities out there, but to get people to those opportunities uh, seems to be the barrier, right? Like there is a perception, as you mentioned, of nursing. And even sometimes I even talk to nurses. And when I ask like, oh, so how would you describe nursing? They default to the tasks that they perform yeah. versus the actual work that is the profession of nursing, right? So I think uh, there's definitely room for us as a profession to close those gaps and better inform uh, the underrepresented populations in nursing as to what nursing does. So it's not just a like a labor workforce type of a thing, but there's mm-hmm. a whole profession behind it. Uh, so that's great. Um, so how well, did and, you... Go and ahead, can I, yeah, and I, I think that the, the extra aspect here is that nursing requires a certain personality. 
yeah. there's some there's some variability in that. Um, you know, you need to be smart and dedicated and humble, but you also need to be an advocate. Yes. And so, if you are somebody who's had challenges in life, or you have, um, you know, sometimes been been called loud or bossy as a woman, <laughs> right? Uh, stuff like that. There is a space for you to really use those, um, you know, the dissatisfaction that you see with the world around you and channel that into to better experiences for people. Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah, uh, I, I, you mentioned that and I and I laughed because my daughter who who is, uh, she's 12 now, but a couple of years ago, uh, when she switched schools, she's, she's, she's like this person that likes to kind of get in there, take charge and kind of move forward with whatever she's doing. And she got called bossy and she came home and said, like, why am I being called bossy? And it wasn't bad, but she's she's always had that personality. And for a while, that's just being called bossy kind of uh, knocked her down a notch. And it took us a while to get her back to where she feels comfortable voicing her opinions and voicing, you know, kind of trying to take it take a lead in a project that she feels passionate about. So there's definitely opportunities there for us to. That's a whole nother, I think, a segment. I think it's unfortunate, and but it is something that we need to talk about because yeah. there is so much hierarchy in the field of nursing, and a lot of it is built on existing kind of sexism that we yep. see in the healthcare field, and it creates unique challenges, especially for men wanting to get into the field. Oh right? yeah, like, I mean, where do they fit if our world is always seen as something that's kind of uh, for helpers and yeah. for women? So yeah, no, there's a lot of conversation here, and it's really exciting that you do this show. Uh, I've been so impressed with it. So it's, I, yeah, I'm just so excited to talk to you. Yeah. And I think part of the show and and just making sure that there's, you know, uh, I'd I'd like to say it's not some of the guests that I have on here are, are sort of not on purpose, but it's on purpose because I want to make sure that we're diversifying and we're bringing different aspects of the profession. And especially, you know, from a concentration, I've been sort of, I've been criticized, the show's been criticized, I should say, for the fact that I bring primarily uh, nurses that have a uh, doctoral or master's degree and those types of things. But the whole purpose behind this show is not to necessarily just highlight those nurses, but show where nurses have opportunities, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, right? Because there isn't representation out there. We don't hear that much about all the things that nursing does and how they advocate and how they're involved in policies and how they're involved in the political world, how they're advocating for communities. And so a lot of those nurses are nurses that do research and are, and are engaged in those communities uh, on, you know, organizations and things like that, which I know you, you do a lot of work around. So, and we'll, we'll, t- we'll get into that. Um, so what made you decide uh, to go for your doctoral degree and, uh, and what, what was the, and, and then eventually a postdoc, what was the well, so push I for that? Had, yeah, I had gotten out of my master's program and I was lucky enough to be offered, um, a fairly lofty position that I, I probably wasn't ready for, but there, again, there's so few nurses with advanced degrees that yes. you kind of get thrown into these spaces that, um, you know, again, maybe you're not totally prepared. But I was the the head of utilization, capitation, and case management for the children's hospitals in Southern California, which was a pretty big job. And it was based out of Rady, which is Children's Hospital San Diego. Um, but I also supervised pods of nurses up in Orange County at Chalk. And so I was kind of traveling back and forth between these spaces, and I was helping establish policies and procedures for utilization. 
And, you know, to simplify it, do people get the things that their provider requests for them um, because they appear to be evidence-based, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of power in that role because you can deny something based on paperwork that in reality, in a, in a very human term, is absolutely needed, right? Yeah. But, the, but the paperwork and our systems don't necessarily reflect that. And so while I was there, I was trying to come up with algorithms to smooth that out, to make that whole process a little quicker. But I kept hitting this wall where there just wasn't enough scientific evidence for these sweeping decisions that we were making. And while I was at that job, I started kicking around the idea of how do we generate research? How do we actually make this better? And kind of the breaking point for me was that I had a request for a cranial remodeling helmet, which is for you know children sometimes who are born with cranial anomalies. They wear these helmets that protect them as they gently kind of remodel the skull. And so these are expensive devices. They have to be adjusted quite frequently. Um, this was a while ago, and I would say that each visit in order to have this adjustment made cost about $2,000. So if you have multiple visits in a month, it's very costly. And so we were trying to find evidence to support this request. But it turned out that the child wasn't able to qualify because the skull measurement was off by like a quarter of an inch. Wow. And which is a lot in terms of skulls, but yeah. but the problem was is that I tracked it back. I thought, man, this family is going through so much. This is such a big decision for them. It's, you know, and it's such a it's such an important aspect of this kid's development. And it turned out that our decision-making capacity was based on one study of six children in Denmark. Oh, wow. That was all the evidence that was being presented to support the policy. And, you know, that, like I said, was kind of my breaking point. I was like, there's just no way. As a nurse, I'm trying to help people navigate this complicated and sometimes unfriendly and sometimes uncaring business that is healthcare. And this is one of those instances where a lack of good research is eating somebody up because it's a business, right? right? So um, so that was it. That kind of prompted me to think about, well, how can I contribute to actually creating the, the knowledge? Um, I knew people at UCLA, and they, they actually offered me entrance into this program to act as a bridge between my master's and my PhD, because I'm sure you know it's, it's hard to get in. It's hard to get in. It's hard to get funding, especially if you're not somebody who has you know, really excelled in college your entire life. Right? You don't necessarily <laughs> have the transcript that looks great. Um, so this Bridges to the Doctorate program um, was incredibly supportive. And a lot of what they did was just meet with us and talk through our ideas so that we could, you know, kind of eloquently talk about what we're interested in. And um, that was really helpful. And it, and it set me on the path that I'm on today. And I'm really grateful that I got away from, from a corporate spot. Um, I will say as a, as a researcher, you make less than half of what you make in these other positions. Oh, yeah. And... So I, I can see why for a lot of people, it's very tempting to go directly there to decision making before you really understand the framework of, of how we're making these decisions. Yeah. And, and I've had this discussion, I think, with uh, several um, people, guests on my show and just people in general that I that I've, you know, colleagues, I should say, um, that have a hard time, had a hard time transitioning into special academia where mo a lot of research gets done uh, of the whole uh, disparities in, in the, the pay differences. Because, mm -hmm. you know, f a prime example myself, going from service side to academia, I took a, I took a 50% pay cut to make yeah. that transition, uh, which is painful. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, we do it for different reasons. So uh, 
it, it also kind of stresses your family, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. Because, I mean, obviously the financial stress is important to your family, but these are generally people that saw the sacrifice and dedication it took for you to become a nurse, right? I mean, anybody who is going into nursing, you have to expect that those first few years to get your RN at least, um, you, you don't really have a social life. You make tremendous sacrifices to be good enough and to process emotionally this entirely new world, right? right. So, and there's an expectation that there's a payoff that nurses make good money. I mean, it is essentially a vocation. It's fairly blue collar. Um, you can make a really good living and still afford to live in even big cities, but um, not necessarily if you're gonna shift into academia. And that's a big problem. Yeah, that is a huge problem. Uh, yeah, because we're, we're probably the only, one of the only professions that allows us to make really good salaries from a associate's degree level on, except when you hit academia then it's like this oh you gotta it's like sort of like a sort of like a monopoly game where you hit jail and you have to go back to the beginning or something <laughs> like right okay, don't do, go too far do not go do not go go past uh, you know oh, mm -hmm. anyway you almost get fined for being in academia sometimes you really so. do and i think a lot of times it's because we haven't necessarily framed the return on investment for our communities and our and our world Right. Yeah. I, I think about, you know, my husband came out of material science. He, he went to Caltech and he does stuff kind of in that world. And the grants, how easy it is to get grants when you're talking about military research and that oh, sort yeah. of thing. Right. Like there is just a different valuation. And I think we could do a lot better talking about how, you know, it may look like I'm just doing patient provider communication studies. But what I'm actually doing for you is giving you evidence to prevent all of these very expensive rehospitalizations. And so I think, you know, if we could just get a little better at our framing, it, it might help. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, and I understand from a lot of, lot of perspectives, academia is like, well, we're paying you according to whatever contracts or whatever mm -hmm. agreements that they have. But I think for nursing specifically, just because we do put out so much, uh, we put out the workforce that's first and foremost uh, but we also put out a lot of evidence to be practiced oh yeah uh, in the community in the hospitals and all of that so the fact that there aren't that many uh, service academia partnerships as far as making sure that the faculty are being compensated so they are making money that's equivalent to the service side is yeah. a little bit shocking i think there should be more investments from academia or from service side into academia from a salary perspective. I think mm -hmm. there should be something. Well, some <laughs> you know, these, these roles exist, these jobs exist, but they're right. generally billed as chief medical officer. Right. Right. And so that's the issue that I'm kind of confronting as a postdoc who has an operations background, but also has this, you know, academic training. The jobs that actually fit my real description are reserved for physicians currently. Yeah. And you know, and it's nothing personal. There just aren't many nurses who are doing this yet. It's a growing number and we should be a growing number. Um, but trying to convince people that nurses aren't the nurse that helped their mom when she was hospitalized for Alzheimer's, like they really respect and care about that nurse. Right. And so they, you know, nurses are well respected and trusted. But it kind of it's difficult for people to make that mental shift and go, oh, but you can also be a CFO. Right. Or you can also actually, you know, create and streamline all of these policies for us and build. So I tend to find the most traction in technology spaces. So I've worked for a number of tech companies because 
they generally have no concept of what doctors or nurses do anyway, right? They, they just know that that you have some experience, you know, creating systems and that you have a clinical background. And so they're very welcoming. Um, and, you know, but that's technology, right? We, we really need to make it much more mainstream if we're going to encourage people to, to go in this direction. Yeah. Because it's a hard sell. Hey, would you like to do an extra, you know, six to eight years of education and make half what you're making now? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I've actually had people say, you know, like, why would I do that? Right. And, you know, it's hard to say, you know, we have all, all we have uh, our own uh, like intrinsic factors that kind of drive us towards, uh, you know, the higher degree or the research base. And there's a separate component that, you know, like, for example, one of well, a couple of things kind of influenced me towards my PhD. One of them was the the 2010 IOM report on the future of nursing. And I'm like, hey, that's something I want. Uh, and then the other component was I never wanted to be in a situation where I was qualified, but oh, oh if you only had your doctoral degree. Like yeah, that was exactly. the, I never wanted my degree to be my the barrier that, that keeps me from moving forward. That was yeah. my big thing. Um, and uh, you know, luckily my wife was supportive enough to uh, to let me do that when I did. Um, yeah, so. that's the key. That's the key issue is supportive spouses. Yes. Right? And yeah. and actually, I feel like that's one of the main challenges at the upper levels of kind of the top research universities is that in order to do this kind of work, you have to have financial support. And traditionally, that meant nurses who were married to doctors or oh, yeah. other people that were making tons of money. So at all of these different universities I've been to, Many of kind of the top people that have been there for for a few decades, their husbands do something very important in medicine. And so <laughs> this is just kind of a lark for them, right? Like they yeah. were smart people who just as easily could have done fundraising or something, but instead they chose nursing. And it, it can create this this barrier between, you know, people who are who are upper middle class slash upper class versus the people who are coming in to do health disparities work. And they just don't have that cushion, right? Right. Right, so. uh, and it's it's very true, and and I'm I want to say I'm almost hesitant to talk about it because I because I know some of those people like you know yeah. all of a sudden you see like this this nurse who was in academia all of all of their life, um, and all of a sudden like they donate like five million dollars. Yeah, to, I'm like, where did this five million dollars come from? <laughs> oh, by the way, they they are my they, head or my husband's the head of neurosurgery at Mayo. Yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. It's so, interesting, right? And, so, and I'm not knocking anybody. No, 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 no. I mean, but, I appreciate I appreciate it because they're they're still giving back to the profession. But oh yeah, when, when we look at diversifying the upper echelon of nursing, when we look at diversifying uh, with with more underrepresented populations, some of those underrepresented populations are not coming from money. They are not married into money. They're yeah. not. They have to work to support not only their own family, but sometimes multi-generations. Absolutely. You know, I worked full time through all of my education. Yeah. All of it, even yeah. the PhD, right? And yeah. I think about all of the opportunities I missed to yeah. attend other lectures and to go to dinners and all of these things that are great networking, but you just can't. You got to, right. you know, you got to stay focused. Yeah, it's it's a big challenge. You know, the biggest challenge that I'm facing lately is that I'm in these programs that are making huge efforts to diversify the field. And so they are making sure that they recruit diverse applicants, which generally means ethnic racial minorities. Right. And I push this because I think we need to do a lot better, including rural populations, because that is a huge political power right now that we've kind of excluded to our detriment. Right. But the diversity that I see in my programs is of people of color who are upper class. Like yeah. these are people who are not first gen. 
they come from very wealthy backgrounds and it's the same model that we just discussed. Like, yes, I'm a person of color, but my dad is the director of cancer research at, you know, wherever. And my mom was the first epidemiologist to come out of it. Right. Like right. that sort of diversity is important because visibility is important. Right. But you're still going to miss some critical class based discussions that are the foundation of health disparities in this country. Right. Yeah, I I I I hundred percent agree because like you know everybody has you know from a research perspective everybody has their own lens and nursing specific even if you look at it from a nursing lens even within the nursing lens we just based on our own backgrounds we have different perspectives so I think we shouldn't just look at uh, skin color as the diversity uh, of individuals but we also need to look at uh, the environment that they grew up in because that's going to make a difference if I grew up in a upper upper class or upper middle class versus I grew up in uh, in in a in a lower uh, you know tier of uh, of income so I think all of those are are very valid points which makes you know nursing overall complicated so. Thank you. Now I want to I want to jump into and and I'm and, and I want to almost kick myself for not knowing about your theory generator playground. Uh, what is uh, I and I did my homework after you sent me your bio. I'm like, hey, I gotta look this up. Um, so I want to talk about this because there, there's components of this that I'm that I kind of really speak to me. So talk mm-hmm. about uh, this theory generator playground. Yeah, so it's a it's a funny thing. I got a free computer um, through Hartford funding when I first started my PhD, and I called it Theory Generator. That was the name of my computer oh. when you sign it up. <laughs> um, and so that kind of people are always like, "What's the deal with the name? It doesn't say Latinx anything." And I was like, <laughs> I, "It was a spontaneous thing." So I I started my PhD, and I in that period was looking at the experiences of older Latina women who had diabetes and obesity and kind of what were their barriers to their uh, engaging in physical activity. And so I was at UCLA and, you know, lots of fantastic minds there. uh, But at the time, and even now, there were no tenure track faculty that were Latinx. And uh, that's kind of shocking to me, having grown up here in Los Angeles, because you know, especially the neighborhoods that I've grown up, you've got like a 98% Hispanic Latino population. And so you would kind of think that there would be more representation of diversity. Um, Not their fault, of course. Like I said, there's a small applicant pool. Um, So, you know, you're lucky to have who you have. But what that meant was that I experienced a lot of very unintentional, not malicious microaggressions. And they were pretty Mm -hmm. constant. And so um, some of the comments that I heard were just kind of big assumptions about who I was. And it was a lonely place, right? And so you're, you're in a cohort, you're all competing for funding, you're all competing for recognition. It's, you know, it's a very challenging, rigorous academic environment. And I was getting to the point where I'd kind of had enough um, and was seriously considering dropping the program because okay. it just felt like, you know, I, there was no one for me to talk to and process anything. So I had met a couple of other nurses from from other environments that were in academic programs. And we decided to start hanging out, you know, for for drinks, we'd go get wine and, and process the day. And it started kind of creating this idea in my mind of peer mentorship. And like, what does it do for me if I can go to a space and process some of these like, you know, microaggressions, right, which were were not maliciously meant, but are slowly chipping away at my desire to stay here. 
And so that's where it started. It ended up uh, being a group of five of us initially, and we went and had dinner at Urban Plates, and then we just kind of kept going from there. And over the years, anytime we would get funding, uh, we would invite each other onto our projects so that you increase the number of publications, you increase the number of manuscripts, you get exposure. For most of them, there were only a couple that had PhDs already, or they were in the process of PhD, and most of them were looking to apply to their next place. And, you know, getting access to active research, the ability to participate in research to build your CV is challenging and yeah. is often unfairly proportioned to the people who do have parents who are like the director of neurosurgery, right? Right. So, um, so that's what happened. And I started actually talking to kids as young as eighth grade and telling them, hey, if you're interested in healthcare, consider being a nurse. You've never heard probably about what nurses can do. So come sit in on our research meetings and I'll, you know, I'll teach you whatever little methodology I know, something, you know, relatively simple, or I'll talk you through how to do a lit review if you have questions about stuff. Um, and it just became this kind of ever expanding effort to loop in students. Um, they could come from wherever. Uh, we did do like Latino focused issues. I sometimes use Latinx for kind of the broader appeal, but insiders generally don't like that. They generally feel like it's trying to, you know, gentrify spaces that are kind of not comfortable but right anyway but yeah so it, it grew from there and i think today we've had like 18 people pass through this this pipeline because it's always about helping people get to that next step so whether they're trying to get accepted from a community college into a you know a top university whether they're trying to go from their like masters to a phd program or they're trying to get through an np program We've had a hundred percent success getting people to that next step, and wow. it involves you know writing each other letters of recommendation as we all become a little bit more like quote unquote important. Those letters <laughs> have some more gravitas, right? Um, but it, it's also just creating content for people who don't even have the ability to sit in on a meeting. So a lot of what I do is create YouTube videos and maintain that, and I have a Facebook page with lots of resources so people can look at scholarships. Um, I help a lot of people with scholarship essays, right? I don't know why those are so intimidating, but they're so, uh, many of them aren't even applied for, right? Right, And so, so yeah, it's it's been successful. It's helped me kind of keep my head above water in spaces that are not very diverse. And it, and it makes me feel like there's some generativity that lets me breathe. Because I know a lot of nurses who are in their like 70s and 80s who are not gonna retire probably ever because they never feel like they've made a big enough dent in making right. things better. And we have to be able to retire, right? You have to be <laughs> able to like do your time and then like step away and, um, you know, and, and hopefully this will, this will help with that. Yeah, that's amazing. Now I saw, and uh, one of the things that caught my eye was uh, the mural work that you did as part of this. Uh, uh, talk to us about what, what was, I, I've seen the YouTube videos, but I'm not gonna, <laughs> Yeah, Without no having everybody go to your YouTube videos, uh, and I will have actual links to your YouTube channel and Facebook and all that for oh, anybody who's looking for it. Um, but um, talk to us about what was your thought process around that and how it came to be. I have a I have a love of art on the side. I, it's sort of like it's how I, I do my creative outlet. But uh, talk to us about that. 
Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of explanations. Probably the first one being if you try to sell, come to another class-like uh, environment to learn about research, that doesn't go very well, um, at least initially for people, right? It's, it's not a big draw. <laughs> Um, and so what we do is a lot of service projects and that can include like, um, you know, beautifying the city type stuff where we do cleanup or it can do things that are specifically, um, you know, trying to improve an area that has some urban blight. And where I'm from, um, I'm actually, I grew up in Highland Park in Los Angeles, which was a, you know, pretty rough area in the 90s um, and then suddenly started gentrifying. And now, you know, I can't even afford to live there. But one of the saving graces was these beautiful murals that I grew up seeing. And they really do, I believe, um, make an area, give some of that, you know, express that internal culture that's living inside the houses um, in a visible way on the outside. Because you can talk down about a lot of communities um, if you always have this kind of negative focus of what they're lacking. And I think it's important to have a, a positive, you know, just kind of more optimistic outlook, recognizing the resilience that exists there. And so I think murals do that. Um, in, a, in a deeper way, my mom ran away as a 14-year-old from a, a reservation in the Southwest and came out here to Los Angeles and made her way, at least initially, painting murals. Um, oh, wow. And I, as a kid, we would go make extra money um, painting like holiday signs on buildings. You know, when it's like, you know, half, like, Thanksgiving Day special, 99 cent hamburger, like that sort of thing. Right? <laughs> so, so I learned to not be scared of painting publicly and big um, as, a, as a child. And then as I uh, finished my undergrad, I had started working for a mural company. So I, I it, again, it was an easy way to make money. I was never, I never considered myself an artist, but it's like, hey, this is a vocational skill I have. And this was before I, I started working in nursing. And I, I've done like 50 large scale mural projects in, in Southern California. Wow. And it was about that time that I was also working in a hospital and I started on this track to nursing and the murals had to sort of fall back a bit. But as I became a researcher and I thought about interventions in communities for my Latina women who have some barriers to exercise, I thought of all of the murals that I've seen or worked on, not one has been health focused. Why is that? They're giant billboards advertising something, right? Like they're right. sometimes they're portraying like, you know, folklorico dancing and like, wow, that's beautiful. Um, but is there any real reason why we don't have something promoting breastfeeding? Like, is there any real reason we don't have something that's like allowing you to understand better what you can do to prevent diabetes? Like, why aren't we doing that? Yeah. And so my uh, Albert Schweitzer fellow project was using a mural to break down some of the barriers for these Latina women, to explore some of the barriers to public exercise in a community that, you know, there are some some social stigmas around taking time for yourself, frankly. And so, um, so that was the first mural project and it's kind of gone from there. Our most recent ones have been um, in South LA, kind of the border of South LA and East LA. And we're working at a charter school there, trying to beautify um, some pretty hardcore urban blight for these kids, um, many of whom are fleeing unsafe environments because of gangs or because of trafficking or other things that they've been through and don't deserve to go to school in a place that looks like a prison, right? So um, so yeah, no, it's a very happy, pleasant part of, of my research work. Uh, not the easiest to get funded though, I will say that. It's, uh, it's, you know, I think, and I, and I have to say, I absolutely love, love, love this, the work, this work that you're doing. 
um, because we, uh, you know, I recently uh, did like a, a sculptured piece around PPE, lack of PPE oh, yeah. over this yeah, past year. Uh, we just had, uh, I just had a, uh, uh, with partnership with the, with the university I work at, with our I'll put, I'll put their name out there, uh, Cal State LA's library. Actually, we just did a virtual exhibit with nurses and physicians that do uh, art, specifically a little bit more specifically with around illustrations. Mm -hmm. um, but we kept it COVID focused. But these there's a community of uh, people in the healthcare field and in research that do. Uh, just sort of what you're really talking about, using illustrations and paintings and art as a way of communicating to the masses mm -hmm. uh, things that are related with what's going on in healthcare and health and well-being and uh, all kinds of stuff. And the fact that we don't have, uh, as, a, as a profession, we don't give it more, uh, more clout uh, yeah. because it does reach a broader audience than a research paper. Mm -hmm. uh, because we can reach the community. If I if I took your research and I put it on on you know on on ten sheets of paper and I published it and it ended up on behind a behind a paywall, uh, the community is not going to get that. Exactly. But if I do take that same work and I display it in an art format, whether it's on a comic or whether it's in a, a sculpture or a mural or whatever the case may be, it's going to reach that much. The impact of that, I think, is so much larger. Uh, than uh, than a published paper. Not to take anything from published no, paper. I, I have totally their agree place. with you. Well, they you know they have their place, but nurses are different than other scientists, and we really are tasked with changing people's hearts and minds yep. and pivoting them towards positive, healthy options in a way that literally no other group is, because we do holistic care, right? right? And so, yeah, you have to go with what's what's most effective what's actually yeah. going to help people process change. And then there's like, you know, weird capitalist barriers to getting access to this information, including these paywalls yeah. that universities have to pay so much in order to get access to an article. And I had kind of uh, a couple of months ago decided I was going to do everything I do open access from now on. Yeah. And just uh, I had kind of averaged out my expected papers per year. And that would cost me twelve to fifteen thousand dollars personally out of my grants and, and you know my personal funds, right. uh, just to make sure that the research that I create is actually seen by the people who participate in it. And that's shocking. It's it's not okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, and one one of the things that I that I'm really happy to see you're from the UC system. I'm from the Cal State system. One of the things that both the UCs and the Cal States right now are pushing for is the information that they're generating go into open access. Yeah. I know the UCs sort of ended the whole relationship. We're going to pay millions up front to have access to our own research mm -hmm. type of a thing. And the Cal States have partnered along, uh, right along with that, uh, pushing for that open access for the research that academia is generating. Mm -hmm. uh, again, uh, like I said, I think there's a place for nursing journals or, or scientific journals overall. But I think as the creators of that knowledge, I think we need to do more in making sure it's accessible uh, and not, you know, we pay or the grants pay for us to do the research. That research, we're almost forced to put it into journals yeah. uh, that, you know, sometimes people have to pay to be yeah, in those journals. Yeah. 
and then people, those same people have to pay to get access to those journals. So there's a whole double dipping thing that happens with, uh, with, with those journals that are making uh, a lot of money off of, m- off of uh, knowledge that they are not helping fund. No, it's true. But I also think there's this kind of larger disconnect because it's, you know, you're, you're right. Our, our progression in this field requires that we publish things, right? Yeah. And it, it, that is kind of built in. But when UC was having their issues with Elsevier for a little while there, right. and we weren't able to access those journals, I wasn't able to access those journals in the two years that I was doing really important work. Right. And that meant that there were certain perspectives, certain findings that I couldn't access. Right. And that really hampers, I'm sure not just me, but science, yeah. science with a capital S. Right. And, you know, the, the place for journals is this acknowledgement that I'm not doing documentaries here. I'm not doing my own personal spin. I don't get to do that. Right. As a scientist, we're creating to the fund of knowledge for the species. Right. Not for my own glory, because if you're doing it that way, you're doing it wrong, right? And I'm creating, um, I'm creating, you know, basic information that people two generations from me can stand on top of and not have to start from scratch. Right. The idea that a capitalist system is going to disrupt our species moving forward is something that I just take such umbrage against. Like it is really challenging to me. In the same way that there's, a, you know, lots of people who will never use themselves, their minds, their hearts to their capacity because of student loan fear. Right. Right. And, and so there's, you know, that part of me that believes that I, I owe the, you know, what I'm capable of doing in terms of science to other fellow nurses who are doing their part on the floor. But I also owe it to them to be an advocate for the field and actually get out there and make sure that like silly capitalist leanings aren't the reason that they're able to really achieve what they want. Right, right, 100% agree. Uh, and like I, like I said, uh, uh, with uh, I have some context for you. I think, I think, I think there's opportunities for us to collaborate. Uh, I'd on, love that on something bigger. So that's fantastic. Um, so uh, just I want to make sure that we, we're not running out of time. Um, uh, thank you so much for uh, this. Is this is all? Uh, I I love the work that you do. I'm a big, huge fan. Uh, anything else you want to share with us before? Uh, before we sign off. I I will just say that, you know, my current focus right now is the impact of provider burnout on the delivery of quality chronic illness care in under-resourced settings like federally qualified health centers. Um, But what I'm seeing in real time when I'm gathering data is nurses really suffering. Mm. Um, And what we do is so important, uh, even more so for the people on the floor than what I do. Um, Please take care of yourselves. You know, guard your mental health like it is a crucial resource because it is. And if you need um, you need access to somebody, make sure that you reach out. You know, if that's a therapist, that's just a friend. Now is the time to make sure that we muster our resources and protect each other. Um, so just be sure that you're here with us once we get through all this. Yeah, thank you so much. And and uh, just to piggyback off of that, uh, the new tw- uh, uh, Future of Nursing 2030 report had a huge emphasis on mental health well-being. Um, I, and I think the profession, uh, there needs to be, there needs to be a movement that we are able to put out more mental health providers out there mm-hmm. for not only the profession, but also just society in general. 
Uh, that was one of my biggest concerns with the pandemic is like, there's going to be a huge fallout. Oh, yes. It was like March of, I think March of 2020, when this whole thing first started, I told one of the things I told my wife is, is, is nursing is going to suffer after this because there isn't going to be either people are going to leave the profession or there's going to be some kind of a PTSD issue That's or right. some kind of a mental health impact in the healthcare overall. And I said, if we don't, address this now, last year, mm-hmm. we're going to be behind the eight ball moving forward. But I haven't seen a lot of movement from, no, from, the, I, from the service side of taking care of frontline staff. There's some, but not enough. Yeah, no, you're, you're 100% right. And I will say that a lot of this is rooted in nurses always deprioritizing themselves. That yes. is a, that's a personality uh, component of being a nurse. And it is time for us to make sure that we're taking care, you know, put your oxygen mask on first before you assist the child next to you, right? We got to get that built into our culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. You you just gave me a, gave gave me a visual that's, 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 that's going to stick with me. I'm going to have to draw that out. I'm going to have to draw that out. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for being here. Uh, I I hope we continue to stay connected. Actually, I'm going to make sure I stay connected with you because I I think there's work we can do together. Yes, please. Uh, So thank you so much for being here. We have been listening to uh, Dr. Adrian Martinez Hollingsworth. I will have links to her so and to her project. Uh, so please make sure you follow. And if you want to participate, I highly recommend it. Uh, and I look forward to what you're going to do uh, next. Uh, with that, uh, this is the last episode of season three. I appreciate everybody's support. Uh, and thank you for being with us. And we'll be back at the end of July with season four. Have a great one. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.